turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, and we're looking at the book of Ephesians for the next couple of months, looking at this age-old question, who am I? Who am I? And we're learning out of the book of Ephesians how we as Christ followers can understand that through Christ that we have a new identity in Christ that reorders, restructures, and reorients and redefines every definition, every identity that we have of ourselves. No longer do we need to live like the world in identifying or defining ourselves by our status, the stuff we have, uh, our skin color, our sexual orientation, or the struggles that we face. But instead, because of Christ, we now identify ourselves by our Savior and the salvation that we have in Christ. It is because of Christ that we now have a foundation and we have a standing that establishes our worldview, our perspective. It establishes our self-image and our outlook on life. It is this three-word question that you and I must, we must be able to answer. If we don't know who we are, then the world and culture will have us all worked up. It will have us questioning everything about ourselves. And as a result, we will go down all manner of bunny trails and rabbit trails, if you will, going after all manner of lies. And so God in His grace, God in His goodness, has given us the book of Ephesians for us to know who we are, and has established for us our true identity in Christ. And so if you haven't, open to the book of Ephesians, this book that has been structured, that has been purposed for us to know in the first three chapters who we are, and then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, based on those first three chapters, it teaches us how we ought to live in light of that truth. That in light of who we are in Christ, therefore how we ought to live as married people, how we ought to live as single people, how we ought to live as parents, how we ought to live as children, how we ought to live as employers or employees, how we ought to live in the good times and in the bad times, how we ought to live as citizens, how we ought to live with enemies and with those we love, how we ought to live no matter what comes our way. The problem is, is if we don't know who we are, then we will have no idea how we ought to live in those circumstances of life. And we will find ourselves inevitably lost at every turn. And so this morning, we pick up this book, this textbook that we will be in for the next handful of months. And we remind ourselves what Christ says He has done for us and who we are in him. And so we pick up in Ephesians chapter 2 where we left off last week. Now last week if you were with us we had a very difficult passage of scripture to deal with. Not so much because it was hard to understand but because of what it said about us. It told us things about ourselves that maybe quite frankly we didn't want to believe about ourselves but we were reminded of the truth that God knows many times better than we know about ourselves that we were in fact dead in our trespasses and sin. And so we're going to pick back up where we started last week because we need to hear the bad news again. Because without the bad news, the good news isn't any 
really good news at all. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to start in verse 1 and finish up in verse 10. And we'll use it as, in essence, our prelude to our time around the Lord's table in communion this morning. Here's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the power of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us up in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What an amazing passage of Scripture. We have before us what I would like to call a before and after story. A story of transformation. And if we're really honest, we love those kinds of stories. Stories that tell us a story before something happened and a story about what happened after. We love before and after stories. We love before and after pictures. Let's take it with a house. There's something about seeing a house that is run down, a house that is out of date, a house that is all broken inside, and and having a craftsman or a carpenter take it, a designer, an architect designing something that was so broken and so beat up and so out of date and turning it into something beautiful. Whether it's our own home or it's a a home on the Home and Garden Network, there's something beautiful about seeing something going from old and being made new. But let's fast forward and let's think through uh, that it's not just something that's an inanimate object being taken from old to new. Uh, Let's talk about our own bodies. There's something about when a friend or someone we know, or maybe even a celebrity who has gone through a body transformation. And maybe we've seen some changes. Maybe it's someone close to us, and we've seen little by little that they look a little differently. And it isn't until uh, maybe a, a marker in their life, maybe they, they post on Facebook, I've been on this journey, and you see a before and after picture. And they say, I've lost this amount of weight. And it begins to dawn on you, man, there's been a major transformation that has taken place. They're a different person. And they begin to articulate, I've been on this journey. I've been on this transforming journey where I've done this and I've done that. And you see the old, the before picture, and you see the after picture. And what inevitably happens for a lot of people is those before and after pictures are the impetus to ask the question, what have you done? What what did you do to accomplish it? Tell me your secrets. We love the before and after pictures. 
But sometimes those stories are even more dramatic than the before and after pictures of a house or a, even a, a weight loss. Sometimes it's the before and after pictures of a struggle or an addiction. Someone you know or someone you're living life with has struggled with drugs and, and alcohol and, and it's destroyed their life. And, and you can even see the symptoms of that addiction in the, the physical realm. They look different. And they've struggled with it. And they've gone years with it. And, and it's eroding the very essence of who they are. And, and it's made them a fraction of what they once were. And they made a decision, maybe through the consequences of, uh, of their drug use or their alcoholism, that they finally came to the end of themselves. And maybe through the help of others or through therapy or, or, or through a, a multi-step plan, they finally started to get a handle on their addiction, on their alcoholism. And little by little, moment by moment, decision by decision, they started to get sober. And their life began to change. And, and they began to share a story. A close friend of mine who's in the pastorate shares the story. And I, I don't have his picture, and it's in the third service. You think, man, that would have been a great picture to show. But he shows the picture of his, of his drug use life beforehand, before he was saved as an adult. And, and then a picture of him now. He's a pastor of a large church in, in Tennessee. And you wouldn't even notice that he's the same person. You see, we, we're mesmerized by the before and after pictures because within them they show a transformation. We can see with our own eyes something has changed. There's been this momentous moment, if you will, that has happened that the old is gone and the new has come. In our text today, right before our eyes in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is this before and after passage that hinges on two words. Now you would think that those two words are theologically deep words. You would think they would be words that they would be so deep that you would need a seminary degree to know and understand them. That you would need to have a knowledge of the original Greek language to be able to plumb the depth of these words. But I want you to know at the beginning of verse 4, I believe to be some of the most significant two words in all of the Bible. And it is the hinge upon which our transformation takes place. And it, these two words are simply this. But God. But God. Because in verses 1 through 3, it's all bad news. And from verses 4 through 10, it's all good news. And the hinge of bad news to good news, before Christ and after Christ, are two words, but God. You are either on one side of that, but God, or on the other side. That is where you are going to find your identity. In verses 1 through 3, or verses 4 through 10. And where you find yourself in that passage will radically determine how you experience life in the here and now and how you experience it for the rest of eternity. So, let's look at this before and after story. And I want you to find out where you're at in it. And number two, how are you experiencing it to its fullest?
So let's look at this before and after story. And look number one, we need to understand this before and after story helps us to remind us how things started. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but for the sake of telling the whole story, in verses 1 through 3, we learned last week that things are very bad for us in the before story. Very dark, even depressing. When we start looking at what our life was like before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sin in which we used to walk, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit <clears throat> that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's all bad. There's no good. And in this, there are three things, and I just want us to very quickly, as a way of review, write down three things that are defined about us. Number one, what Paul declares is there's total spiritual inability. Write that down somewhere. Before Christ, we have total spiritual inability. We are dead. When you're dead, you can't do anything. Nothing. And so what God has to do is God has to do the work. Get in your mind Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. And the only way Lazarus is able to do anything is Jesus comes and John is called out. I'm sorry, Lazarus is called out of the grave by Jesus. And so if we're going to do anything, Paul says that we have to be made alive in Christ. And so we're dead. There's no ability on our part. We're as dead as doornails. We're dead. Number two, we're depraved. We're spiritually depraved. There's a spiritual depravity. There's an inability. There's a depravity. Notice we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Now this doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. This doesn't mean we're as bad as everybody else. See, right away you hear that and you're like, well, I'm not as bad as I could be. You're right. That doesn't mean you're not totally and radically depraved. It also doesn't mean you're, you're the worst person there could be. There are Hitlers and, and uh, Stalins and, and, and terrible people in the world that are probably in some ways worse off than you are. That's not the issue. Total depravity theologically means that there's not a part of you that is not touched, that is not impacted, that is not affected by this cancer that we talked about last week of sin. It touches every part of us. There's not a good part of you and a bad part of you. All of us is bad. Every part of us. Number three, we have a spiritual inability. We have a spiritual depravity. We have a spiritual sinful proclivity. So it goes on. And it says that this depravity leads us to be led by the passions of our flesh. It causes us to carry out the desires of our body and of our mind. And so we have this inclination. We have this proclivity. We have this, this impulse within us that is always, listen to me, always going to make sin more attractive we're always going to have this draw to sin that is going to be more powerful than holiness. Now remember, what I'm describing is before we come to Christ. And so in our lost state, before coming to Christ, 
The draw to sin, the draw to unrighteousness, the draw to the temptation to rebel against God will always be more than the draw to following God. Why? Because we have a spiritual inability, we're totally depraved, and we have a proclivity to sin. And because of that, we go around this world and we sin. We go around this world, we rebel. And as a result of that, verse 3 says, we then are by nature children of God's wrath. Now Paul, in a corresponding passage of Scripture, write this down in Romans 1, articulates that as a result of this sin, we are rebels against God, we are haters of God, we are inventors of doing evil, we exchange the truth for a lie, we claim to be wise while being fools, And as a result of all of these things, God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness. So here God has been articulating this through His Word over and over again. And this is a repeating theme that has been going on since the dawn of humanity. And we've seen it. Man sins, God's wrath comes. Man sin, God's wrath comes. And we've seen it. Now, within that, has there's always this season of God's long-suffering and patience and grace and mercy and love. Don't mistake, listen, don't ever mistake that God was just this vengeful God in the Old Testament when man sinned and then God just extends His wrath. Understand that what God has been doing is giving us pictures of what He's doing now. So, let's look at Noah and the ark. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 that God looked at mankind and He saw that every inclination of man's heart was to do evil. Right? And so God is saddened that He had created man. And so God purposes in His heart that He's going to bring a flood. And then God says that He finds favor with Noah. Okay, so so there's His love, there's His mercy. But His mercy isn't just on Noah. His mercy is on mankind because it takes Noah 120 years to build the ark. And Noah the whole time, the Bible says, preaches repentance for 120 years while he's building the ark. Opportunity for the people to repent and they don't. Let's move to another time of God's wrath. Sodom and Gomorrah. We have Abraham going and preaching to Sodom and Gomorrah. They don't listen. God's wrath comes. We go then to uh, Egypt. Moses preaches to, to Pharaoh, let my people go. The, the, the uh, plagues are coming. And one plague comes. Hey, he goes back. He warns him again. Another plague's coming. I don't want to listen to you. Another plague comes before the firstborn is killed. Opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. Jericho is another time where God's wrath comes. How many days does God have His people walk around the city? Seven days. And even on the seventh day, seven times they walk around it. The people of Jericho could have said, okay, we get it. We understand. We give up. They don't. The walls come tumbling down. With every one of God's wrath, there's always an opportunity for God's 
patience, love, and opportunity for repentance. And when the people repent, God relents. Jonah. Remember Nineveh? Nineveh is about to be destroyed. God sends Jonah. Jonah preaches an eight-word sermon. Repent or I'm going to destroy Nineveh. Nineveh goes, good enough for us. Okay, good. We give up. Even though Jonah hates the Ninevites, God relents and they live happily ever after. So don't get this idea that just you hear God's wrath. Well, that's how God is. He's this vengeful God. And okay, if you were in the, the sound guy's like, this is nothing like the sermon I heard two times already. And here's why. Because I got confronted in the parking lot. And someone said to me, very angrily, I don't get how this works. Because God is just a God of wrath. How can He be a God of love? And so I said, you know what? Tune in on the next broadcast. Okay? Because this is how it is. Yes, God is a God of wrath. Because He extends His love again and again and again. Gives opportunities, gives opportunities, gives opportunities. So, here's what we've got. We are in that season right now, my friends, of God's opportunity. Now, if you turn to the right from the book of Ephesians to the end of the book, the book of Revelation, there's a lot of wrath coming. There's a lot of wrath coming. You turn these pages, a whole lot of wrath. There's bowls of wrath. There's trumpets of wrath. Wrath, 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 wrath. And what God says is, now is the time. Repent. 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 Warning. 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 Listen, I'm here at the door. I'm knocking. I'm telling you, now is the time. In His grace, in His mercy, in His love. And so, when that wrath comes, listen to me, whose fault is it? Is it God's fault? The answer is no. He has warned. He has given opportunity. He has said. He has put the writing on the wall. My wrath is coming. And so, if you find yourself in verses 1 through 3 and can hear my voice in this room or online, stop and believe in what God is declaring to you today. So, what's happening between now and the wrath that is to come? But God. But God. And so point number two, because my notes make no sense to me now. Point number two, this before and after story helps us recognize all that God did in salvation. So, we've got an opportunity in this moment, in this moment, God has done something. We can either experience His wrath... Or, we've got an opportunity for good news. And the good news is, is that God has given an alternative. His alternative is God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and He has raised us up with Him and seated us up with 
uh, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Okay. So, instead of his wrath for this season, for this moment, and we don't know, listen to me, we are not guaranteed that tomorrow this offer will be still there. We don't know when his wrath will come. No one knows the hour or day. So in this moment, at this time, grace is being extended to us. And the reason why it's being extended to us is because God right now is looking at this lot of us And he is saying, as he looks at us with love and mercy, he's saying, I want to offer them salvation. I want to offer them salvation. And here's the amazing thing. If you look at verses 1 through 3, you and I are standing there exposed in our sin. We're standing there exposed in our sin. In many ways, we are standing there naked in shame. And here's the thing. God knows our sin. God knows our shame better than our spouses do, than our our parents do, than our children do, than our best friends do, uh, than our co-workers do. God knows everything we've done, publicly, privately, what we've shared with people, what we haven't shared with people. God knows it all. And here's the thing. While many of the people around us would leave us in a heartbeat if they knew what was on our docket of sin... God is saying here, I'm getting close to you and putting my arm around you. I'm loving you. I'm extending mercy to you. And I'm doing this because of my love and mercy that notice what the describer there, he does it in verses 1-7 and then he does it in 2-7, that which I'm rich in. I'm rich in mercy... And so notice what he's going to do. This word rich is a banking term that they would use in the original language. And the idea here is, is we are rich in sin and rich in our trespasses. So in the banking world, you are rich in your debits. You're rich in your withdrawals. And the problem is you have no credits. So like most of the teenagers, okay, you're overdrafted, right? And so spiritually you're overdrafted. And what what God is saying to you is you're overdrafted. And the problem is, is hell is full of people who are overdrafted spiritually, okay? And what God is promising in salvation because of what Christ has done is what God has done because of Christ is God took your overdrafted account. This is very important. Don't ever forget this. God has taken your overdrafted account. He linked it to His heavenly account and He merged it with an overdraft protection. And what He did was He said... Whenever you overdraft because of sin, because of Christ, it's covered. So when God the judge looks at your account because of Christ, you're never overdrafted. You've got the riches of heaven. You're a millionaire. Ten times over. 
You may not feel like it. The devil may make you feel like you're a pauper. But because you're in Christ, you've got the immeasurable riches of His glory behind you. And the reason why this has happened is because of what Christ has done. Now, now before you start thinking you're all that, notice when this happened. Verse 5, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sin. So you're like, well, of course, I, I'm an important guy. I preach three sermons on Sunday. I teach theology on Sunday night. I write small group curriculums. I'm a multi-site church pastor. Yeah, God's got a good pick. He's glad He picked me in the third round. No. God picked me when I was dead in my trespasses and sin. When I offered nothing. When I was millions of dollars in debt because of my sin. I got nothing to brag about. The only thing I got to brag about is my Savior. That's the only thing I got. That's the only thing I bring to the table. The only thing I bring to my salvation is my sin. And here He comes. And Jesus brings me out of my sin. Notice what He does. He makes me alive. And notice the phrase, He made us alive. If you underline your Bible, this is really important. Together with Christ. Together with Christ. And notice what He's going to do. He connects us with Christ. And it says, He raised us up with Him. Verse uh, 6 raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places with Christ. This is really important. What, what He does here is, is He connects us with Christ. God does. And what Paul says is whatever God did for Jesus, take it to the bank that He's going to do it for you. So, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He already said that in verse 1. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is what's raised you from spiritual death to life. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, he's articulated that. So he's raised us from death to life. Jesus was raised from death to life. That's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Then, God raised Jesus from the earth to the heavenly realms. Forty days later, we celebrate the ascension of Jesus. Just as Jesus was raised from the grave back to life, and just as He was raised from the earth to heaven, we too, as our older brother, as the book of Hebrews, Jesus, our older brother, the book of Hebrews calls Him, did, so we have been raised from death to life, and one day, my friends, we will be raised to the heavenly places. And when we are raised, and you're like, well, I'm not sure I believe that. Well, if you can believe that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, then I'm telling you, you've got a place waiting for you in heaven. And what you've got waiting for you in heaven are the immeasurable riches of His grace. And so what you've got right now, we go to the Olive Garden, Luke's favorite restaurants, the Olive Garden. And every time we go to the Olive Garden, they give you this little pager, little black pager. And we wait, and the most happy moment of Luke's life is when that thing starts buzzing and lighting up. And listen, the next thing that 
as important to you and I as that buzzer, that spiritual buzzer goes off. Because when that does, the rock group has articulated, you ain't seen nothing yet. Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. And some of us need to hear that this morning. Because this life's hard. This life has beat us up and spat us out. And we're wondering. And I'm telling you, church, when you're in Christ, you ain't seen nothing yet. And there's something that God's got on the horizon. And He's got it ready for us. And He's got it waiting. And so then the question is, well, how do I get it? I want that. Some of you are sitting in verses 1 through 3 and you're going, I want that. Pastor, get to that. I'm sitting in verses 1 through 3. You get it by faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. So how do you get it? It's all of God. It's all of God. The mechanism that you get it is by faith. So we can't go to church and get it. We can't get baptized to get it. We can't take communion and get it. Uh, we can't have a pastor bestow it upon us to get it. So how do we get it? We get it by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. The mechanism by which we get it is belief. Belief. And so here it is. The verses have already shown us this. I believe that I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. I believe God. I believe what you say about me. I believe I cannot fix it on my own. So I believe that Jesus came to fix it for me. I believe that Jesus on the cross of Calvary fixed it for me. I believe that by faith. And I believe that by faith that what Jesus did on the cross will not only fix what happened in the, pres of the past, but He has the power to address what's in my present. And He has everything I need for the future. And I believe it so much I believe it so much that I'll reorder my life to live in light of it. And if that is your belief, then you're living in Christ. You're living in Christ. And so that turns your story from being a before story to starting to live the after part of the story. And that then leads us to responding to the story. And our response, how do we respond? By showcasing that story. Showcasing His grace. Verse 10, how do we showcase it? For we are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works don't save us, but what good works do is they tell people that we've been transformed. So as we move to a time of communion... Let me ask you, where are you at in the story? If you are in the before part of the story, it's time for you to believe. It's time for you to believe. Before it's too late, in this season where God's grace is offered, believe. If you're in the after part of the story, you've experienced God's grace... How are you showing His workmanship of that grace in your life? What good is it for you to go to work this week and to say you're a believer and have gone through the before and after story only to talk 
like you did before Christ, only to act like you did before Christ, only to uh, be married like you were before Christ, to parent like you did before Christ, to treat people like you did before Christ. You see, communion reminds us that once we are in Christ, everything changes. That the chains that we once had before are gone. We've been set free. And so communion moves us to ask the question, what are the things that are of our past that we need to let go of? And and the great thing about communion is it reminds us of the, the price that was paid. The sacrifices that were made that allow us to leave that in the past and move forward to a future of forgiveness and grace. And the great thing is, is that forgiveness and that grace and that love and that mercy that we found that first time that we sought Christ, it's still there today. You see, His grace and His mercy and His love wasn't there the first time you failed. It's there the millionth time you failed. And so in this moment, in this time and place, whether you're in this room or online, would you take a moment and and seek God's face and ask for His love and forgiveness for the first time, a thousandth time, a millionth time. And would you just allow the Holy Spirit to shower you with that richness of His love and mercy? And commit to Him that you'll be the best before and after story to the people in your life so that you might showcase His grace to the best of your ability.